0: Log Talk Radio.
1: This is Abayomi Azikaway and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that is brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, Abayomi Azikaway, and today is Saturday, January 20th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition uh, of the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing airstrikes targeting resistance forces in the West Asian state of Syria. Another attack attributed to the Israeli Defense Forces has been carried out in southern Lebanon, uh, resulting in the deaths of two people. The Non-Aligned Movement, uh, the NAM Summit, has been held in the East African state of Uganda, where the situation in Gaza was a major focus of the gathering. And the incumbent president uh, of the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, Mr. Felix Tshisekedi, has been inaugurated again uh, for a second term in uh, the mineral rich Central African state. In the second hour, we look closer at the Non-Aligned Movement Summit. Later, we focus on the statement uh, by the Republic of Namibia condemning Germany in their support uh, for the genocidal onslaught on Gaza. Finally, we listen to a discussion on the potential outcomes of the South African case against the state of Israel charging violations of the Genocide Convention. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the Um Orchestra. Film Festival. Uh, this is a concert uh, recorded live in
2: 1960 over Radio Cairo. Let's listen in. <laughs> على رؤيا من كلمات احمد رامي ولحن رياض السمباطي
3: سلم لك أمرك be mm-hmm.
2: قلت ان غناءها كان جميلا لكن قولي فيه العز وفيه تقصير. وان قلت انه كان فنا وسحرا وتجديدا لما وفيت ام كلثوم حقها وليتني استطيع ان اصفها لكم وهي تغني اقصد وهي تعيش اغنيتها انها تحيا مع كل كلمة تجد بها وتنفعل مع كل معنا تترنم به. Sada,
1: Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, and that was uh, Mkaltoum's orchestra from uh, a live concert uh, aired over Radio Cairo in 1960 right now we'd like to move into our pan-african newswire segment these are some of the headlines in today's pan-african newswire iranian president ibrahim raisi has strongly condemned the assassination of five islamic revolutionary guard corps advisors in an israeli missile strike in syria saying such quote cowardly unquote acts will not go unanswered quote certainly the continuation of such terrorists and criminal acts which are indicative uh, of the increasing failure and defeats of the illegitimate Zionist regime in achieving its malicious goals, and the depth of its frustration with the fighters of the resistance front will not go unanswered uh, by the Islamic Republic of Iran, unquote, Raisa said in a statement uh, earlier today. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps said earlier in the day uh, that uh, four of its members uh, serving on a military advisory mission in Syria were assassinated in an Israeli strike on a residential building in Damascus. It said later uh, than a fifth advisor had succumbed to his injuries. In other news, uh, Hezbollah deputy secretary general Sheikh Naim Hassam, uh, a senior official of the Lebanese Hezbollah resistance movement has warned Israel against waging an all out war on Lebanon, emphasizing that the occupying regime should expect a strong slap in the face if it underestimates his group's defensive capabilities and commits an act of adventurism. Hezbollah Deputy Secretary General Sheikh Naim Qasim described Israeli's threats against his movement as hollow, saying, quote, if the Zionist regime decides to expand the Gaza war, it will receive a strong slap and learn an unforgettable lesson. The enemy knows that the response will be very decisive, unquote. He added that Hezbollah will continue its strikes against the areas in the northern part of the 1948 Israeli-occupied territories as long as the Gaza War continues. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And in other news uh, taking place, uh, the non-aligned movement uh, held its summit in the East African state of Uganda over the last several days. African leaders have condemned Israel's military campaign in Gaza, urging uh, an immediate end to the ongoing conflict that disproportionately affects civilians. The criticism was during a conference in Uganda, hosted by the Non-Aligned Movement, a coalition of 120 states that do not align formally with any of the major power blocs. The president of the United Nations General Assembly, uh, Denise Francis, expressed deep concern and dismay over the continuing calamity in the Gaza Strip, in a strong statement, he employed the Non-Aligned Movement to leverage its influence to bring a halt uh, to the devastating violence, questioning how much more suffering the region could endure. And finally, uh, Congolese President Felix Tshisekedi was sworn in uh, earlier today following a disputed December election, promising to unite the Central African country during his second five-year term and to protect lives in the conflict-hit eastern region. He said that, quote, I am taking back the baton of command uh, that you entrusted to me. We want a more united, stronger, and prosperous Congo. who who is 60 years old, said during the inauguration ceremony, attended by several heads of state. His first inauguration in 2019 marked Congo's first uh, transfer of power uh, since the fall of Mobutu Sese Seko, peaceful transfer of power. Uh, and also the country gained its independence from Belgium in 1960 under the leadership of Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba, who was martyred uh, just uh, six months uh, after assuming office. With that, uh, you, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal, concluding this segment of our program, We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for saturday january 20th 2024 go to the pan-african radio network that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal we'll take a break we'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week From uh, Tina Turner with the track entitled Two People, and as we mentioned uh, during the Pan-African Newswire segment, the Non-Aligned Movement uh, held this summit in Uganda over the last several days. Let's listen to a report on uh, the Non-Aligned Movement Summit.
4: Let's now go to Uganda, where Heads of State of the Non-Aligned Movement member countries are meeting. The 19th Summit of Heads of State and Government of the Non-Aligned Movement will come to a close today. Close to 30 Heads of State and Government are attending this summit, according to Uganda's Foreign Affairs Ministry. The summit, held under the theme Deepening Cooperation for Shared Global Affluence, was preceded by the ministerial meeting and the senior officials meeting the leaders are expected to adopt the final outcome of the four-day deliberations by senior officials and ministers the documents are the compiler final document and the political declaration on palestine ugandan president yuviri museveni has taken over the chairmanship of the summit and the movement for the next three years. Since its establishment in 1961, the non-aligned movement has been guided by the abandoned principles, which include respect for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all nations, recognition of the equality of all races and nations, and abstention from intervention or interference in the internal affairs of other countries. Our reporter Nick Mudimba is joining us live now from Kampala. Nick, what's the latest from the non-aligned movement heads of state summit?
5: Absolutely, Penina. So the last day of the non-aligned movement here in Kampala, Uganda, it will culminate today. The closing ceremony will be at around 5.30 East African time. So today it will be all about the adoption of the documents. That's Kampala document and, of course, the Palestine report. The heads of state will now be taking what the senior officers and, of course, ministers uh, came through from day one uh, to discuss all this so adoption of the documents will be a uh, very very integral today uh, something else opinion is that the head of state will actually now also put forward the recommendations because um, from reports you're getting is most of them despite even the ministers and of course senior officials coming through represent them they want to be here from day one just to see how this flow all through so today is the final day and it's all about adoption of what the senior officials and the ministers discussed today.
4: okay so pushing it forward what should we expect at the end of the day
5: All right. Now, so at uh, the end of the day, we also are looking at deliberations. Um, you know, um, when, when when you talk about Kampala document, um, there's so much happening um, there, be, during the previous um, uh, Nam uh, meeting. So uh, the Kampala document will be very important now to guide and steer uh, the movement for the next three years. Uh, Uganda's President Yoweri Museveni will now be uh, very very vocal in this case, and also this has come as an opportune moment for Uganda because Uganda that will now be at uh, the head. And also something else for me is that The political uh, declaration on Palestine is something that indeed uh, will be very, very um, keen. So many uh, countries across the world will be keen to see if NAM is now getting vocal and, of course, uh, being assertive uh, once again to make sure that, indeed, they come out with resolution to end. What's happening also in Gaza, what's happening in Sudan, and, of course, what's happening also in the parts of Ethiopia diplomatically with uh, Somalia.
4: Right. So, Nick, tell us about
5: the other summit, the G77 Plus China. All right. So, a big transition. This will be now uh, an economic transition. Uh, the NAM summit based its agenda on uh, political uh, kind of a setup. But this time round, the G77 Plus China summit will be more of trade Now, science, technology and innovation has been given a top priority here. And also when you talk about uh, South-South cooperation becoming very assertive, it's something also China is, is using to make sure that indeed it continues being a destiny shepherd to these countries that are still developing. As I said earlier, China being a developing country, it's, it's very, very interesting to see how um, uh, a country can come in and just uh, hold hand. ...of another fellow country that is developing. And of course, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, many countries, in the G77, really had a difficult time. And China was one of the countries just to come through big time for these countries. Also, them, we'll be talking about the large concerted voice of the G77. And right now, despite the name being G77, it enjoys having more than 130 countries... That's the membership and of course more countries are coming in. So this will be very interesting to see the adoptions, the resolutions by the G seventy seven. But the key thing here is about trade. In about actually abolishing embargoes, abolishing red tapes among each other and also Penina will be focusing more on what the countries will be trying now to push forward. There's been a problem and uh, many countries are saying that indeed they've been uh, selling products to other countries, but other countries are saying that other countries haven't been buying the same products. So this must be a two-way trade affair and many countries in this situation will be tabling such troubles during the G77. China's involvement It will be a very big plus for all these countries because now this is where, like a hegemon, they're coming to see where to fill in the gaps.
1: Welcome back. That was a report on the uh, non-aligned movement uh, taking place, has been taking place over the last several days in Kampala, Uganda. Here's another report on the non-aligned movement.
6: This is The Full View. Welcome back. Well, let's now get some news from across the continent. The Non-Aligned Movement Summit in Kampala, Uganda, has discussed the current global challenges facing the world. The summit is expected to end today. For more on this, we're now joined by Leon Senyang from Kampala at the NAM Summit. Now, the NAM Summit comes to a conclusion today, Leon. What have been the major talking points of the summit so far?
7: Well, very much so interesting that uh, over the last five days the very big talking point has been the Israel-Gaza crisis and we've just come out of a press conference by the President of uh, the UN General Assembly, Dennis Francis, therein. He critically said that this has been an extremely frustrating moment over a few months uh, since uh, the October 7th attack uh, there and that's that's part of uh, the Israel-Gaza crisis. He believes that there must be an immediate end to this particular conflict, insisting that there must be a return of uh, hostages, a cessation of the violence, and of course, the access to humanitarian aid. And this will definitely be the major talking point, while as we wait for the Kampala Declaration, the political declaration, with many of uh, the leaders attending the non-aligned movement summit here, having the voice. On now uh, that particular crisis, and it is, it, is, it is we're definitely waiting for what uh, the the movement itself will be coming out to say. But uh, over the fa- past few days, uh, they have come up to condemn uh, the, the military campaign by Israel in Gaza, and that uh, the many will be offering their support in trying to see that uh, there is an immediate arrival to uh, ceasefire. Mm,
3: very
6: interesting with those gl- uh, declar- declarations, uh, Leon, they, especially on the Gaza crisis that have been tabled for adoption. What do you know about that and other key outcomes from the summit? And of course, this is all happening uh, at the back of the inauguration of the much contested uh, DRC President uh, Chisikedi.
7: Well, absolutely. Um, Africa has taken a set of stage in this particular uh, summit, it's been hosted in Africa, and uh, very much so some of the African issues have come through in regard to economic development. How much does Africa benefit from uh, being uh, members of, of, of the non-aligned movement? What are those opportunities that are going to come through for the African countries beyond the political uh, discussions that uh, have uh, been on the side? But importantly though, is the fact that uh, on the sidelines, uh, the disputes within the continent have. Uh, been an issue to discuss. The war in, uh, in, in Sudan, the dispute between Ethiopia and Somalia, um, and the coups that have existed uh, on the continent, plus now the, the political um, uh, sphere of things within the Democratic Republic of Congo, where many heads of state actually left the summit to go for the inauguration of uh, President Felix Sisekedi, including uh, President Cyril Maposa, who uh, departed uh, la- la- last evening for, for, for that. So um, it, it remains a very critical issue how the African nations will be navigating uh, the political space, but importantly though, is uh, just how much many have a collective voice in trying to deal with the the geopolitical tensions, not just on the continent, but on, on, on the globe
6: but what tangible solutions are being put up uh, leon i mean otherwise then this is just a talk shop as you've just mentioned most of uh, the heads of states uh, especially from the eac region have all left including our president uh, to go and attend the, the inauguration out in the drc today so what tangible solutions have been tabled and who's going to hold the bodies to account
7: The biggest call from uh, many of the speakers here, and uh, some uh, international um, organization uh, heads and also heads of state is dialogue. Uh, many are pushing for, uh, for those in uh, disputes and conflicts to sit down and have a discussion on the issues. Uh, dialogue will probably see many of uh, these disputes come to one end, but that of course remains a very big uh, question, especially when you talk about the situation in uh, Sudan where uh, the, the government forces and uh, the rapid uh, Force, uh, force there and in, of course, I try. I failed over a period of time to arrive at a particular uh, decision. Just as much as the crisis in Ethiopia and Somalia, the advice there has been, gentlemen, sit down and have a discussion about this issue, so we can avoid the spiraling of uh, conflicts over uh, the the continent. So, uh, the major message here has been dialogue, dialogue, and dialogue, and hopefully uh, that could help and. Uh, see an arrival to the resolution of uh, the disputes that exists under uh, peace and stability.
6: Mm, Leon, very interesting that, uh, you know, the Gaza matter was at the top of this agenda, yet we haven't seen of the uh, none of the, the African countries publicly come out in support of South Africa, taking Israel uh, to the ICJ. What are some of the conversations around that? Why is there no public stance in support of South Africa or even measures uh, by other states or other countries to ensure that uh, the war in Gaza comes to an end.
7: Well, it's very interesting that uh, you actually bring that matter up. And it's very important to note uh, the relationship between some of the African countries and Israel they're in. And many have uh, been, silent or even still, have had a subtle approach to how they are dealing with the matter. And it's, one of, it's been one of the talking points here for, for many of the experts we have spoken to. How does a country like Uganda, now hosting the NAM uh, Summit, try and deal with uh, or have as much of a say in trying to castigate Israel for its military campaign? Yet, it's just as much as much to benefit from Israel. So uh, the the approach to that entirely depends on how the African countries are uh, are relating with Israel in itself. They may don't want to come out to be seen as as being against uh, what and breaking that relationship they have. We have had the DRC and Kenya uh, come out strong to condemn Israel, uh, but just as much um, the effort by South Africa has been commended in some other spaces and corners because indeed uh, the arrival at uh, uh, the end of uh, this crisis that has affected more than 25,000 uh, people, 25,000 people have lost their lives and thousands have been displaced and bordering towards a very huge humanitarian crisis uh, is one that uh, remains a very huge concern not just for the globe but also importantly for, uh, for the African countries and definitely for them to arrive at, uh, it's been a delicate approach for many of uh, the African nations in this
5: matter. Mm.
6: And in closing, Leon, I mean as the summit comes to a wrap to What can you tell us has been the general sentiment and, uh, of course, the expectation that will arise from the talks and debates that have taken place uh, at the summit?
7: Well, the summit has had a couple of facets around it. Uh, that is entirely the business element, uh, w- with the business forum having started in the beginning of the week, that many of the African countries uh, believe and hope they can find opportunities therein. Uh, there have been uh, side-by-side talks um, uh, between several countries here going on, and uh, of course with the major push for the non-aligned movement countries to try and, 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 and develop more of the cooperation economically, and uh, in terms of development in areas, health, uh, science and education and all the other spaces. Uh, so that has been one of the areas that uh, many could feel uh, has been a benefit to the Nam nations. The political side of things has also offered a different tandem to to how uh, the discussions have been going on here. Uh, many have uh, looked at the Israel-Gaza conflict like we have been talking a, a lot more here. But then also the uh, rival at ending the disputes that exist, and particularly on the continent. Um, like I said earlier, the Sudanese war and, uh, and, and also the Somalia-Ethiopia uh, dispute there in, and several other situations that have existed on the continent. So um, the, the message here entirely for many of the discussions have been how can we try and de-escalate all these kind of uh, political tensions that exist but then also enhance uh, and, and, and grow the spirit of peace and stability. That many expect that will come out of uh, the discussions that have been going on here and uh, the countries could probably have better relations going
8: forward.
6: All right, Leon, thank you so much for that sound update. Today. That is Leon Sinyang. Uh, he, uh He's in Kampala for us, and he was giving us a wrap of the A&M Summit.
1: Welcome back. And those were our two reports on the uh, Non-Aligned Movement Summit uh, that has been taking place over the last several days in Kampala, Uganda. And in the last report, uh, unfortunately, the announcer made uh, two incorrect um, uh, statements uh, one of which um, didn't seem to have any real appreciation of the history of the non-aligned movement going back to 1960 and 61. uh, two african states leading states at the time egypt and ghana were co-founders of the non-aligned movement uh, some 63 years ago also that uh, no other african countries are supporting South Africa's legal challenge against the state of Israel. Right now we want to listen to a report on Namibia, the fact that the Republic of Namibia, which is a member of the Southern African Development Community, a neighbor of the Republic of South Africa who also fought alongside uh, the ANC for the uh, abolition of settler uh, colonialism and apartheid in Southern Africa, has criticized openly uh, Germany uh, for its its stance in defense of the state of Israel as it relates to the genocide being perpetuated against the Palestinians and people living in other uh, contiguous states in West Asia. Let's listen to this report on Namibia.
9: Namibia has condemned Germany's backing of Israel against genocide charges at the International Court of Justice. It says, given Germany's colonial brutalities, that it should not support Israel. So what's behind this furious diplomatic dispute? And why now? This is Inside Story. Hello, welcome to the programme. I'm Adrian Finnegan. Namibia has fiercely criticised Germany for intervening in defence of Israel at the International Court of Justice. South Africa brought the case against Israel, accusing it of committing genocide in Gaza. Now, Germany wants to appear at the court to make a submission in support of Israel. Namibia condemned the move, pointing to Germany's own colonial-era genocide committed against its indigenous people. This is a story with many strands, showing how the past intertwines with our present world order. And we'll get to our guests in just a moment, but first, Uma Khulsum Sharif sets up our discussion.
10: At the turn of the last century, Germany was the colonial ruler of what is present-day Namibia. Between 1904 and 1908, German forces killed more than 70,000 indigenous people. Some refer to it as the first genocide of the 20th century. In 2021, Berlin acknowledged committing genocide in Namibia. Now, in a scathing criticism against its former colonial ruler, Namibia has condemned Germany for supporting Israel against genocide charges made by South Africa at the International Court of Justice. In a statement posted online, Namibian President Hege Jingob urged Berlin to reconsider its decision to intervene as a third party in defense of Israel. Gingob says Germany is ignoring the deaths of more than 23,000 Palestinians and defending what he calls genocidal and gruesome acts of the Israeli government. The Namibian president says Germany has failed to learn lessons from its colonial past. Germany
8: is trying to dodge because they know if South Africa succeeds in this case, so they, they, then, then the next is Germany, because we are we, we, are, we are going to to sue Germany. We are not finished with Germany. So our solidarity is also with the Palestinian civilian in Gaza and the Palestinian people because the, the, their land is occupied.
10: While a colonial past overshadows Namibia's relation with Germany, the Holocaust has defined Berlin's ties with Israel. Since the war on Gaza began, the German government has increased its arms exports by tenfold.
1: Germany stands by Israel's side. We will support the country, and we support its right to self-defense.
10: Namibia's president says Germany could not morally commit itself to the UN Convention Against Genocide while supporting what it calls the equivalent of a Holocaust and genocide in Gaza. The criticism comes as judges at The Hague are deliberating after a two-day public hearing on the accusations of genocide in Gaza. Israel has rejected the claims and declared its military operation in Gaza is in self-defense and to eliminate Hamas. Several countries, including Namibia, are now backing South Africa's case at The Hague. Sharif, Al Jazeera, for Inside Story.
9: Let's bring in our guests for today from the Namibia's capital. We're joined by Mujinda Kajir, who is uh, the paramount chief of the Oberheiro traditional authority in Namibia. From Uppsala in Sweden, we're joined by Henning Melba from the Nordic Africa Institute, and from Heidelberg in Germany, Matthias Goldman, a senior research fellow at the Max Planck Institute with expertise on international law and Germany's colonial ruin in Africa. A welcome to you all. Let's start with you, uh, Matthias. Um, What do you make of Germany's intervention at the the International Court of Justice? Um, Shouldn't a country responsible for two genocides be actively looking to prevent a third?
11: Absolutely, Adrian, I cannot agree more with you. Let's say that legally speaking, it's not entirely surprising that Germany is making an intervention, because in all fairness, Germany has intervened in previous cases of genocide before the International Court of Justice, namely the case brought by Ukraine against Russia and the case brought by the Gambia against Myanmar. So um, there is some precedent for Germany intervening in genocide cases and obviously due to Germany's history, um, there is a reason why it is uh, particularly concerned about that. But let me say that um, I found the way in which Germany announced its intention to intervene quite surprising, as not to say disappointing, because I think there are different ways in which you can uh, say that. And what I found particularly, uh, 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 particularly problematic is the way that they framed South Africa's complaint as an instrumentalization of the International Court of Justice, uh, which means basically it thinks it's an illegitimate suit it's something that should not happen and after all we've heard during the pleadings in the past days or last week that that is quite a strong statement therefore i'm absolutely not surprised by the reaction on the uh, on the side of namibia
9: okay let's uh, bring in uh, muchinda uh, in namibia's capital what are we to make of the timing of Namibia's intervention here, Uh, can we see it as a a genuine expression of solidarity with the people of Gaza?
12: Uh, Thank you for having me, Adrian. Um, Namibia's intervention is
8: applaudable uh,
12: because uh, we had a long history of collaboration uh, with the uh, Palestinian Liberation Organization all the time through the times that uh, Jasper Palafat was the president. So the case that South Africa has launched is, is a case that Namibia as a whole supports, but it comes a bit of a surprise to to, to us, to the Ovaherero people and the Nama people, who have suffered um, genocide at the hands of uh, Germany, that our president uh, is now accusing Germany of not talk, of not uh, being in line with the with the Genocide Convention, while at the same time. Our government has sided with Germany uh, for violating the rights of uh, victims not to participate in the negotiations, for agreeing uh, with Germany that uh, Germany has not committed a genocide in Namibia, uh, for agreeing that uh, Germany must only pay um, money towards what. Uh, uh, bilateral arrangement, uh, development aid programs to Namibia instead of paying reparations. So I think it's a bit hypocritical of uh, the president now to, to say, look, Germany must do the right thing, while in our own negotiations with Germany, we agreed not to do the right thing.
9: Uh, but Chinda, uh, were the Ovejaro traditional authority, or was that the that the traditional authority actually consulted ahead of the, the, the president's in, intervention. Uh, and uh, what did your organization make of it?
12: This latest intervention, we were not consulted at all. We, we, we read it in, a, in, a, in a social media. Uh, equally, we were also not consulted when our president uh, started to negotiate with the German government on the, the question of Nama and Herod reparations.
9: Okay, let's bring in uh, Henning. What did you make of uh, President uh, Gango's intervention and his somewhat undiplomatic language? It
8: indeed is very strong language which is not in line with usual diplomacy. And I think it simply highlights the uh, offense the Namibians take. And President Gango voiced in a rather blunt way the utter frustration which is existing in a majority of Namibians when they look at the German attitude which they consider as arrogance, as hypocrisy, and moral double standards. (laughs) The Namibians were all the time confronted with a lecturing posing of Germany during the last year's after Germany finally admitted that what happened at the beginning of the 23rd century was in today's perspective, a genocide, which is a reservation, meaning there is no legal relevance to what they admit has been committed. And they were always told, not least the agencies of the Omaherero and the NAMA, and the chief can testify to that, that you cannot compare your case with the Holocaust, yeah. and the reference was made to the singularity of the Holocaust, as if from the perspective of the Nama and the Ovaherero and the Damara and the San, the extermination strategy that was applied to them was not a singular experience, and I think that is something Germany, until the very day, despite the admission of guilt and remorse has failed to understand. There is a total lack of empathy when it comes to the perspectives of the Namibians. And President
9: Geingop voiced that frustration. Matthias, uh, you were nodding in agreement there.
11: Yep. I can only underline what Henning Mehta has just said. I think it's absolutely correct to say that Germans are underestimating what this causes to people elsewhere in the world, particularly to the victims and, you know, the descendants of the victims of past genocide, to see Germany in such a position right now and to see Germany lecture the world. There has been a lot of uh, diplomacy from Germany um, that tries, and I would say in some ways at least sincerely, to break with the past and make a difference, in particular in relation to African countries. And, you know, to actually get to a status of a partnership at ICE level. But all we heard in the past weeks has basically obliterated these efforts. I think you can restitute a lot of uh, looted art, a lot of human remains, or as many as you want, uh, if you don't follow up on that behavior uh, when it comes to... Uh, this suit brought by, Af- by South Africa, and there have been many attempts that try to delegitimize the South African government. Actually, quite from the centre of society, not only from the fringes, but also from, you know, from serious people in uh, positions of power. And that I find quite uh, uh, quite sad. Actually, it, it it really means that many people haven't understood that the times of European imperialism are over.
9: Chief Kachura, I'll come back to you in just a moment, but, but while, well, I just want to pick up on this point with, with Henning uh, once again. Has Germany ever offered a sincere apology for its actions in, in Namibia? And, and if not, I mean, where, what are we to make of Germany's uncritical loyalty of, of Israel? Well, you see, there
8: the double standards enter the picture again. In 2015, the German government, more in passing, admitted that what happened at the beginning of the 20th century was a genocide. The spokesperson of the foreign ministry in answering the question of a journalist said, if you want to call it genocide, then call it genocide. And that triggered bilateral negotiations between the German and the Namibian government. And those negotiations were about the form of apology. So just imagine from the point of view of Namibians, there is the state that admits to have committed genocide and then starts in the meantime eight years of negotiations to reach a compromise in a draft joint declaration how the apology is phrased. And the reason for that is that this is supposed to be an apology which has no legal implications. And it follows a slogan which already was issued 20 years ago by the then foreign minister Joschka Fischer, who said, no apology which is relevant for reparations. The negotiations between Namibia and Germany were focused on the issue that Germany was desperate to avoid a precedence that the recognition of the genocide in Southwest Africa would be one that is legally relevant for reparations. And the term reparations is not mentioned in the joint declaration. So we are again back to square one when it comes to double standards. And just imagine, the reasoning is that the UN genocide convention was adopted after the genocide was committed in southwest africa it refers to this principle of intertemporality where they say you can't qualify it as a lock-stop and full genocide because that notion was not there now just pause for a moment and imagine what would happen if with the same argument one would make reference as to the Holocaust, as a genocide, which was not in legal terms a genocide, because it happened before the adoption of the genocide convention. This is the perspective and the point of view of Namibians, and the Germans simply don't get it.
9: Chief Katsua, um the joint declaration issued by the German and Namibian government says Germany asks forgiveness for the sins of its forefathers and that the Namibian government and people accept Germany's apology. Why isn't that, along with the funds that Germany has agreed to pay, enough for the Herero and Nama communities?
12: The apology, at first, the the whole negotiations cannot take place between the Namibian state and German state. We have Hereros in Botswana and South Africa, the United States, United Kingdom and elsewhere. They are not part of that negotiation, or they're not considered. And the apology is not to the Namibian nation. The apology must come to the victim communities, who are the Hereros the Namas, who have suffered systematically under the, termina- the extermination orders that were issued. So our direct participation in carving what we need to resolve and how we come to a response, an answer is pivotal that we are involved. Therefore, uh, if it is only between two states, really, it it does not, it does not, it is not something that we shall uh,
9: accept. Uh, Matthias, this case, uh, Namibia and Germany, underscores the challenges of writing historical injustices in ways uh, that are acceptable to and inclusive of the very people who who were wronged. what are the implications of this for the people of Gaza?
12: When it comes to the reparation of what needs to be restored uh, before the, the, the genocidal activity of, uh, of, of Israel, they have to be directly involved. It's not going, it should not be an issue of the international community deciding uh, for the Palestinians uh, as to how they should be... Uh, or how they need to be addressed.
9: Matthias, do you want to, you want to pick up on that?
12: Yes,
11: um, sure. So uh, this is an interesting issue. Uh, you know, at some point uh, this war will over. Uh, will be over, or we will come to the point where we have to talk about reparations. Uh, now, in the case of Gaza, I would include in that debate uh, issues of war crimes and crimes against humanity. I would not solely focus on genocide because, on substance, I'm not sure if we can actually talk about a genocide that is already happening. There are many factual issues. Many of them have been brought up at the court. Genocide is a crime that is very hard to prove because the intention to eliminate a people needs to come together with the fact. So someone needs to act in order to implement that intention. And that is Quite difficult to prove. It is a very clear case in uh, with respect to Namibia, because there has been an order by General Lothar von Trota ordering the elimination, and then he just did that. Uh, We don't have that clear a case in um, Gaza, but still there is the issue of war crimes, for example, using excessive violence, using um, starvation, or at least attempting to starve uh, the people, uh, using um, insufficient care to distinguish between civilians and uh, combatants, and so on and so on. And all of that could give rise but, to reparations, so I would but, broaden the view here.
9: Yeah, but what about, what about the, you know, you have right-wing Israeli government ministers talking about, you know, bombing yeah. uh, Gaza into, into obliteration. Surely, surely that's evidence. Absolutely. Yeah.
11: Absolutely. What, what that shows is an intention. Uh, to commit genocide or uh, maybe even incitement to genocide. But as I just said, you know, the people acting um, on the ground in Gaza, they need to, uh, for, to have the same intention. So what you need to do is you need to prove that there is basically a line of command between whichever person um, makes such a comment, uh, uh, calling for the obliteration of Gaza, and the person pulling the trigger or dropping the bomb. And that is very hard to prove. In particular, um, if much of that information depends on a military that, you know, you don't control, so to say. Let let me put it in that way. Um, Many of these issues have come up, and I'm not alone in, um, you know, sitting a little bit on the fence if that will actually be proven. But I, I I see much better ground here for proving crimes of war and maybe even crimes against humanity. And that would in itself already give rise to reparation claims.
8: Henning,
9: do you want to come in on that?
8: I think there is indeed a difference, which uh, following the comments now makes the point, as Matthias has stressed, um, the claim to commit genocide is very difficult and hard to prove. And in the past, also in the ICC, um, The court was very reluctant. It is a matter also of legal disputes. I'm sure Matthias knows much better than I do, where scholars actually feel the definition of genocide is rather unsuitable to be tested in the courts. What is much more suitable is war crimes and crimes against humanity. And it's much easier to follow that line of argument And we have a number of judgments where this was ruled that it were war crimes and crimes against humanity. So that is, that is indeed the distinction, which also means at the ICJ the case is pending. The very unfortunate thing, and the reason why we are discussing it now is that Germany did a very ill-advised move On the 12th of January, on the day 120 years after the war between the Namibians and the Germans started culminating in genocide, proven genocide, issued a statement in absolute defense of Israel and the same day didn't use a single word (laughs) to address the historical legacy at a time when the bilateral negotiations, as we are told, are about to be concluded in a joint declaration where, as the chief pointed out, Germany apologized to the Namibians. And the Namibian government has, if I'm very blunt, the audacity to accept an apology in that declaration without the Namibian people having been asked. The Ova and the Nama and the Damala were not asked if they accept an apology. That is the context.
9: Chief uh, Kachua, um the agreement between Germany and Namibia was supposed to be a, a, a win-win for all. Germany would atone for its, its bloody crimes. Namibia would get much-needed funding. Why did protests break out uh, when the agreement uh, was, was, was made?
12: The agreement de- deviated from what uh, the public expected from a, a reparation package to a development uh, program. And um, the, the money that was provided was very meager. Um, as a result, uh, most people did not like it. Uh, in our specific case, this agreement uh, is between Namibia and uh, the German state. Exclude our people in Botswana, South Africa, and elsewhere. Therefore, to the Hereros and Namas, uh, uh, since we were excluded from the beginning, this is something that we're never going to accept at all. And um, one must take note, in one of the clauses it says uh, that agreement, if signed as is, uh, will close any future discussions on the issue of genocide and reparations. So that closes the book. And Germany went on to say, look, they, they what they have done is a gesture of goodwill. So it was not a reparation package, but a gesture of goodwill to the Namibian government. So really it shows the arrogance and the position of imposing to the Namibian state what they want uh, without really taking into account uh, the political situation or the needs of the people.
9: Matthias, getting back to, to Germany's intervention at the, the ICJ, what legal grounds does it have for that?
11: So, for any state party to the ICJ, it's possible to intervene in an ongoing dispute because, I mean, disputes only take place between parties. But as the ICJ is um, the most authoritative international court, it really affects all states because they might create a precedent. And so, Germany is concerned about. Um, The um, interpretation of the genocide convention or it was concerned about that in the previous cases in which it intervened. So you could say, you know, on the face of it, it's not necessarily illegitimate to um, intervene in such a case. And as I said, it's quite a uh, from, from the perspective of the Genocide Convention, it's quite a complicated case. While I, while I clearly see incitement to genocide, and while I clearly see a risk or a threat of genocide, whether there is an actual commission of genocide is quite an, intri- an intricate uh, manner, and I would be very careful in jumping to a conclusion there. So there's good reasons to um, you know to make to make um, submissions for all states actually. Um, the International Court of Justice has also the function a little bit of a forum for debating international law. There is no legislature in international law. There's only sporadic treaties. And I think that's an important function that the court can fill. So I think it, as such, it's OK to intervene in a case. But the question is really, how do you do it? How do you frame it? Um, do you um, do it in a way that is, I think, disrespectful to South Africa?
9: Uh, heading, um Finally, is this yet another example of the global South exposing the double standards of of the West or the global north?
8: I think it is, and it's uh, another piece in the puzzle of a global realignment we can witness since a few years. Uh, there are a number of reference points, and i wonder if President Geingob would have made a similar strong-worded statement two years ago. There are realignments. Countries of the so-called Global South select new partners. They are extremely frustrated that the lecturing of the hegemonic West continues, that the West tells them what is right and what is wrong. Meanwhile, they apply double standards all the time. I'm not saying that in those countries who are lectured are no double standards. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. double standards seem to be an integral part of basically every country. But they are fed up and have enough of the West telling them what to do and what not to do. They are repositioning and there are new global actors with which they can align.
9: Okay. Many thanks indeed. I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, uh, Henning, but we are out of time. Thank you, gentlemen, Chief Mujinda Kajiwa, uh, Henning Melba, and Matthias Goldman. And um, thank you for watching. You can see the program again at any time by going to the website at outerzero.com. For further discussion, join us at our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash AJ Insight Story. And you can join the conversation on X, our handle there. Is that A.J. inside story from me, Adrian Finnegan and the team here in Doha. We'll see you again. Bye for now.
1: Welcome back. And uh, that was a discussion on uh, the role of Namibia in supporting uh, the South African government's case against the state of Israel for perpetuating uh, genocide against the Palestinian people in Gaza. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for uh, Saturday, uh, January 20th, 2024, and we're broadcasting from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
3: The time. we talked
13: about
3: tomorrow I wouldn't sing the line when someone played out When I need a friend You'd be the last one I'd call If I had Any pride left At all I wouldn't keep a place Just to set your
8: picture Reach and touch your face
1: back and uh, that was etta james if i had any pride left right now we want to move into another report uh, also related to the south african lawsuit against the in, against the state of israel at the international court of justice let's listen uh, to uh, this report
0: Well, the world is awaiting a decision by the International Court of Justice on whether or not Israel has indeed committed acts of genocide in Gaza. Last week, let's remind you, the International Court of Justice heard South Africa's case accusing Israel of breaching the UN Genocide Convention in the Gaza war during a three-month conflict that has seen more than 20,000 people killed and scores displaced. South Africa took Israel to the International Court of Justice, accusing it of carrying out a genocide in Gaza. Israel's legal team, on the other hand, said South Africa's claim was baseless and they had failed to make the case. Now, to look at the ICJ's next move, we're joined in studio by the head of diplomacy and foreign policy at the University of Johannesburg, Professor Chris Landsberg, and virtually we're joined by senior lecturer at the Department of Political Science at the University of Pretoria, Dr. Esitambile Mbete. Good to have both of you. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Prof, thanks for coming in. And uh, Dr. Mbete, good to have you. Thank you.
14: Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks so much for having us. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we obviously left off. We did an analysis on, on South Africa's arguments and how they put forward. But, but, Doc, let me begin with you, and then we'll come to studio. So just very quickly, how do you think Israel did Look, I think that uh,
15: Israel's strategy was to avoid the substantive elements of what mm-hmm. South Africa had said, uh, and to rather focus on uh, the on Hamas as a terrorist organization, and that South Africa is basically acting as accusing South Africa is acting as proxy uh, for Hamas, uh, saying South Africa is acting as the legal arm of Hamas. Uh, secondly, they uh, focused on Israel's right to self-defense. Uh, And so emphasizing that the actions that were being undertaken the military operation was uh, to prevent another 7th of October from taking place, uh, and that ceasing military operations uh, would place uh, Israeli citizens in in danger. The third thing that they did is that they focused on uh, what they called Israel's uh, humanitarian uh, actions and interventions in Gaza, basically trying to... uh, paid to the claim that uh, Israel was that, was creating a, a dire humanitarian situation and listing uh, a number of things that they claimed uh, Israel was doing in order to uh, support uh, the people of Gaza in a humanitarian fashion, including setting up field hospitals, uh, providing incubators uh, and food and water uh, to the people in Gaza. And then the fourth thing that the Israeli um, legal team did is that they challenged the provisional measures uh, that South Africa is requesting uh, and basically... Challenge them as having no basis in international law, uh, and is actually overreaching uh, the, and, and stretching the power of the ICJ into uh, internal uh, or domestic uh, Israeli decision-making and policy-making.
0: Alright, so I mean that in a nutshell is very much so how we saw the Israelis coming through, defending themselves and poking holes in South Africa's argument. But Prof, having a look at both of them side by side now, What were your views? How are you feeling now after looking at what South Africa did and what Israel did? Who's got the stronger case here?
14: Um, Who's got the stronger case here? I mean, I just want to remind you um, in the the discussion with Sakina what I said. Mm. Let's not forget one important thing. Those 15 judges, their jobs are on the line. They are all political appointees. And I'm saying that, they're going to try as best as they can, and there will be the likes of of of, of Belgium, uh, uh, of uh, of Brazil, and others that will really hone in on the the legal merits of the argument: was genocide proof? And I think they're veering in that direction. But but make no mistake: there are uh, judges that's going to take their cue from. From from the capitals. Yeah. Look, look what Germany just this uh, this weekend. They literally came out saying, "We're going to resist any attempt to find Israel guilty." And then they threw in a very interesting spanner in the works for me. And I would like to know what uh, um, Dr. thinks of this. They said the Genocide Convention of '48 was actually confined to the Holocaust. Mm. It was not about Anything subsequent it wasn't about Rwanda. Uh, it certainly wasn't um, about this. The the the, the battle lines um, are drawn. But but let me answer uh, the key question that you ask, um, Dr. Mbete, as well. Uh, Israel made a political case. Uh, anybody in their right mind to expect Israel to go there to say? If we committed the genocide, it was by accident because Hamas used them as shield. Israel wasn 't going to go there yes. and let me tell you all, uh, even how wary they were of of where they would go. They did not mention figures about how many people they killed, um, the kind of bombs, the carpet bombing, and so because you know those things verge, if not on genocide and certainly on Crimes against humanity. Let me say this about South Africa finally. I stick to what I said on Friday, that South Africa made a methodical, systematic, well-thought-through case. But I was not surprised that Israel said, you sit there in the southern tip of Africa, you're not on the ground, you don't really know what the facts are. We are the ones that opened the gates for humanitarian um aid and intervention which is not true by the way and, and try to as you put it uh, at the end, poke holes in south africa's argument not legally i put it to you politically yeah
0: yeah and, th- and that's what we very much so did here and also i mean they even put question marks and, and this was on the israeli side that a lot of what we're hearing are numbers coming from the palestinians as to the number of people killed, as to this, as to that. So, you know, where are the facts? Mm. Are they, they're trying to, you know, mm. show that, you know, is this actually true, the amount of people that are being killed? But, you know, these are, these are all things that I imagine we hope we can sit down and the judges will sit down, even though you bring up the political story. I'd love to, Dr. Bethe, hear your view on, on, on the utterances of what Germany had to say about something like this as well, the, the, the stance on genocide. Well,
15: I first want to start with the ICJ judges. And yes, uh, the process of, uh, of selection and then appointment of the judges is political. However, the judges are still uh, professional lawyers, right, with professional integrity that they need to try to maintain. And one of the things that's and one of the biggest strengths, I think, and on the issue of provisional measures, let's remember that at this stage, the court is not required to answer the question of Mm. has Israel committed genocide in Gaza. All they need to answer is: Are the actions being undertaken by Israel in Gaza uh, plausibly actions that could be thought of? as genocidal it's a far lower burden of proof and this many of the judges on this bench not all of them were the judges same people who made the decision in january of 2020 on the gambia versus Myanmar
3: Hmm. to
15: implement provisional measures to indicate provisional measures in that situation to stop uh the the perceived the possible genocide against the rohingya people Uh, In Myanmar, and what the provisional measures that South Africa has requested, there's about nine of them, four of them are almost verbatim from the provisional measures that were granted to Myanmar. So the quandary that this group of judges is going to face is that their own case law, in both the Myanmar case and the Ukraine-Russia case, um, the Myanmar case is is the one I'm focusing on because in that case Myanmar came in to defend itself, In Ukraine, Russia, uh, Russia didn't uh, didn't come to the court to the hearings. Um, in both of those cases the provisional measures that they put in place were almost identical to the ones that South Africa is requesting. Mm. And the argument that they made is that we may not be able to say that there's definitely a genocide taking place, but there's plausible grounds to think so. And so to avoid that eventuality, and let's remember that the genocide convention is meant to be preventative. And this is where I think that there's a great deal of disingenuity in the German argument, is that yes, the genocide convention was, inspired and came out as a result of the Holocaust, but it was to prevent a similar thing ever happening again. Mm -hmm. If the Genocide Convention was only to prosecute Holocaust crimes, then it would have only needed to exist for 5, 10, 15 years and then wouldn't be dissolved. The point Mm -hmm. about the Genocide Convention was supposed to prevent anything like the Holocaust happening again. And the ICJ learned a very, very horrible lesson in the 1990s where it failed to prevent the genocide in Bosnia and failed to grant the provisional measures that would have stopped the fighting in Bosnia. And then a genocide happened, hundreds of thousands of young people died, of of men died.
0: And so I think that there's... There is a lot of yes, argument. The is side is really at. important. So what I want yeah. to I want to find out from you is that the, mm. the and, and Prof. I know I know you've got a lot to say as well. But the reality is that the ICG has no capacity to mandate compliance, other than obviously to go the route of the UN Security Council, which the US
14: government can veto. I I That's I, I, a I, 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 I like the way you put it. You said they don't have, and I'm putting words in your mouth, um, that they don't have enforceable enforceability capacity. However, their finding is supposed to be binding. It's member states of the UN that disregards uh, a Supreme Apex Court like the UN, um, in this case, the ICJ. So the the problem is not the ICJ and their finding. And if I could just uh, throw out a speculation here, they might say, um, just for, for argument's sake, Uh, We agree with South Africa that you should really stop the bombing of civilians. Mm. However, Israel has a right to continue to go after Hamas. Then we start uh, with the real mess. But 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 to come to your point, whatever their finding is, and I am struck by their own announcement this weekend that as early as Friday, we were, we were preparing, Stambile and myself and others, we, preparing, we were preparing for the 7th of February. They say we might have a ruling as early as Friday. Yeah. So where you have to give them credit is there's an urgency that they're showing. Now, I think South Africa and Israel, by the way, is using the space this week to to get as much Evidence, the evidence to back their cases from other countries, for South Africa to, to not only quote ministers and presidents uh, making these purported genocidal statements or real statements, but to go and prove what evidence uh, that it is happening. So in a nutshell, um, uh, uh, Leanne, I think the UN, unfortunately, the eyes will be in the UN as to whether they will veto an ICJ Ruling whatever that ruling is yeah. Uh, yeah. on Friday or beyond. Amazing, but
0: let's let's look at this. So obviously we we're covering in the news that it's a hundred days since what had happened today um today right so um over the weekend um netanyahu comes out and has vowed this is what he said i'm quoting from an article in the financial times vowed to continue israel's war in gaza until total victory marking these hundred hundred days of comments um so he spoke at this press conference saying israel um defiantly brushes aside calls for a ceasefire blasted South Africa's allegations that Israel is committing genocide and will continue to do this. Nobody will stop us. So let's go doctor. What what Mm. do you think? I mean It sounds as though it doesn't matter who Mm. rules what, Israel are not going to stop in their fight against Hamas and certainly not try and prevent the the, the loss of lives of innocent Palestinians. What, What are you thinking of some of these utterances made? Indeed, and
15: I think that what these utterances do is that they say, because if the Israeli government is saying that they won't abide by any um, you know, attempt by the ICJ, any provisional measures that would try to stop the conflict and that they're just going to continue, they effectively then make themselves a pariah, because they put themselves in the position of being a state that is actively defying uh, the apex court of the UN, um, and and they then also place their supporters, uh, the United States, Germany, Canada, others. And let's not forget that part of Germany's support to Israel comes from the amount of arms that Germany has sold oh, to I mean, Israel yeah. since the 7th of October. So those countries that, are now, that have been arming Israel more extensively since the 7th of October are now going to be placed in a very awkward position if, uh, if Netanyahu and his government continue to defy or say that they're going to defy uh, whatever comes from the ICJ and continue their military operation in Gaza. But the, even though it's being framed as we are going after Hamas and we're not going to stop until Hamas is gone, uh, what they're also saying is that Hamas is embedded within the civilian population of Gaza. So how do you get rid of Hamas if it's embedded in the civilian population? Mm. You need to be attacking the civilian population as well. Mm. And so what it does, I think, is that it risks deep isolation for Israel, not only for Israel, but also for the countries that have come out. So strongly in support of Israel, no matter what, no matter its actions. Yeah, and um, and so I think that there's a diplomatic, uh, there's a real diplomatic situation that's going to be brewing here okay. between
0: Israel and its supporters. I'm going to pause the conversation. We need to take our news bulletin, but I am going to come back and we'll just wrap it up. Give further ideas mm-hmm. um, in terms of we've got until friday which is quite unbelievable as you yeah, say yeah, yeah. as to how fast yeah. we're going to act on this and perhaps get a finding and uh, you know some of the other the other ideas accompanied by this so let's get into our news at eight o'clock and then we'll come and wrap up this conversation yes. All right, thanks very much, SK. So let's, let's get back into this conversation and start wrapping things up. So uh, my guests, once again, we're joined here by uh, the head of Diplomacy and Foreign Policy at the University of Johannesburg. That's Professor Chris Lunsberg, And uh, we've got Senior Lecturer at the Department of Political Science at the University of Pretoria, Dr. Setembile Mbete. So again, thank you so much for staying on, both of you. I mean, such a complex issue. It's very difficult to cover it in a short amount of time. But, but let's try and get as much as we can to end this. What always got me was obviously there's a profit. Let me come to you on this. There are questions that need to be asked by these judges, whether we like it or not. There's a lot of there are a lot of things that have been said in these. Arguments that were offered. Um, South Africa by Israel have been called uh, stooges of Hamas. They've been called the legal arm of mm-hmm. Hamas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, w- what if, and South Africa making a lot of allegations mm. against Israel as well. What happens now in terms of the judges wanting to ask questions? We saw our legal team arriving back in South Africa. Where to from here for this week? Where do we go if judges want
14: questions? I, I, I want to I um, uh, piggyback on to something Dr. M- Dr. Mbete said. And, and, and say this to you. I give the judges the benefit of the doubt, albeit that I've said they are political uh, appointees, that they would want to be seen to be even-handed doing their job. It's not a political decision. The the judge president, who happens to be an American, said, we, we want some of your legal representatives to hang around the Hague until that preliminary, because we might... And are likely to have questions for you. Mm -hmm. We're going to come back to both of you and ask you some questions, so that we know, you know, so so that we uh, make the most informed uh, judgment. So 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 that's what's going to happen. In South Africa's case, let me tell you. And I'm saying again what I uh, said to Satina on Friday, but I'll, I'll try and put it differently. For me, the two points that I think South Africa didn't drive home enough is one yes there was the 7th of october and we knew that israel justifiably was going to um hammer on deck i'm going to use the word people think we are biased. act of terror by hamas well i was surprised that south africa didn't go to what happened prior to the 6th of october 2018 2015. Yeah. um the 1967 war um, uh, where this voting started in 1917, uh, you know, when, when Britain just handed 50% of, of, of the land to a people. And here's the point I'm going to make very crudely and politically. You can suppress a people for so long, whether it's in Africa, Latin America, and so on. At some point, don't be surprised if they pick up arms. Mm. And I was surprised that South Africa didn't drive that point. More importantly, South Africa didn't make a convincing case. They were professional. They stuck to the rules of the game. But they didn't make for me the link between the statements of the leaders, all these genocidal statements of uh, don't give them water, medicine, everything, and the actual actions. So it's almost like when they say uh, we're not going to give them water, if you can have evidence that the troops then went to that infrastructure, and bomb it. Then you make a, a clear convincing case that intent led to actions which is genocidal. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, all right, so, we, so we've, we've got that and these are the, the kind of things we may start seeing come up this week with questions coming through to provide more evidence because, I, you know, people were asking, where is the evidence? We need more evidence of the right. accusations that are being made. Uh, we've got to start wrapping and very, very quickly. Um, What about Hamas, Dr. Mbete? We cannot ignore what they have done. Um, I mean, going into Israel on the 7th of October, uh, killing people the way that they did. You know, we're sitting, we're putting Israel on trial for the reasons that we've been put put through. But what about Hamas? Why have they not been hauled before the ICC, for instance, or any other mechanism? Because what they have done as well is, is absolutely atrocious. Indeed, what uh, what Hamas did
15: is atrocious. Uh, but let's remember that Hamas is not a state. It's not a state's party. So it can't be hauled in front of the ICJ. Certainly, leaders of Hamas can be hauled in front of the ICC ah. uh, for their individual crimes. But South Africa doesn't have to do that to justify why it's also taking its role to the ICJ. Uh, there are other countries that can take Hamas to the ICC, and they should. Um, And if they, you know, so for me, uh, the idea that South Africa should be both pursuing uh, the, this case against Israel and pursuing Hamas at the ICC uh, in order to be legitimate in its case against Israel uh, is, is, a, is something that you would not ask of any other country. So why are we asking it for, for, for South Africa? And certainly there are other countries that can take the case uh, for, for you know, of Hamas to the ICC if they so wish. Yeah. But the second thing that I do want to say um, in response to what Prof. Lansberg has said around, around evidence and also framing this in terms of the long uh, durée of history, I think if you read the South African application, uh, it certainly places all of this in context and refers to the UN's own report about 2016, uh, about, about, the 19, about 1967. So if you look at the evidence that has been submitted, not just, the, not just the oral arguments that were made, But the evidence that supported those arguments, which you can find in both the application and in the record uh, of of the proceedings, uh, the evidence is there. It is backed by so much of the UN's own uh, reporting, so much of the UN's own expert testimony. Uh, And that's an important thing because let's not forget the ICJ is a UN institution. It's an organ of the Mm UN. And uh, and what Africa has done is it has used uh, extensive UN reporting uh, in order to justify uh, its, its allegations. And I think that that is critical because if the ICJ says, well, we don't trust your evidence, then it's effectively saying that we don't trust the evidence that is being provided sure. by uh, UN institutions, UN experts, UN Amazing. leadership. Yeah. Uh, and that is a quandary I think that they don't want oh, to get it.
0: I have so many more questions. I really do. The impact that <laughs> this has had on South Africa's reputation with the Western world and the US by bringing this forward Um, What will happen to Palestine if, for instance, the bombs do stop overnight? We've seen what the country looks like. What would happen? I don't have time. I don't have time. I just hope you and
14: Zakina are (laughs) thoroughly confused by now. (laughs) Thank you. We are. We're
0: confused. I hope South Africa isn't too confused. But listen, it's a big week. And we thank you for giving us your analysis. But I know we'll have you back when we get something out of the, uh, out of the ICJ. And uh, as you heard, it could be as early as the end of this week, could be Friday that we do hear something. But it's a very busy week up until then. hope we've helped you uh, understand a little bit more what came out of last week and, of course, what to expect this week going forward. Head of Diplomacy and Foreign Policy at the University of Johannesburg, Prof. Uh, Chris Landsberg, and, of course, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Political Science at the University of Pretoria, Dr better
1: welcome back and uh, that was uh, from the South African Broadcasting Corporation and uh, we're going to hear our, in our final segment um, excerpts uh, from a discussion on the question of can international justice stop the state of Israel in its genocidal onslaught against the uh, Palestinian people somewhat of a rhetorical question let's listen in
16: There's growing pressure to hold Israel to account for its war on Gaza. More countries are referring it to the UN's top court, and its president is facing a criminal complaint in Switzerland. So can international justice stop Israel? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Elizabeth Puranam. It's been more than three months since Israel launched its devastating war on Gaza in the wake of the 7th October attacks. Nearly 25,000 Palestinians have now been killed and tens of thousands more injured. But Israel doesn't seem any closer to its stated goal of eliminating Hamas and freeing the captives, while the humanitarian catastrophe gets worse by the day. Many countries have rejected Israel's actions and South Africa has taken it to the International Court of Justice, accusing it of committing genocide. Israel now appears more isolated than ever. Its president Isaac Herzog even became the subject of a criminal complaint in Switzerland while Mexico and Chile have referred Israel to the International Criminal Court. But will any of this make a difference and what can be done to end the Palestinian suffering in Gaza? We'll get to our guests in a moment, but first, this report from Paul Ging.
17: Israel's war drags on in Gaza, with food and medical supplies nearly exhausted. The humanitarian condition has become dire. Doctors are carrying out amputations without any anesthetic. With growing outrage, and perhaps crucially, legal proceedings ramping up, the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, is facing a criminal complaint in Switzerland. It happened during his recent trip to the World Economic Forum in Davos. A statement from Swiss prosecutors said the plaintiffs are seeking a criminal prosecution in parallel to a case brought by South Africa at the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza. As the destruction escalates on the ground, Mexico and Chile have now referred both Israel and Hamas to the International Criminal Court, citing concerns about war crimes. While the UN's ICJ concentrates on disputes between countries, the ICC is a criminal tribunal which can prosecute the individuals. During Herzog's appearance in Davos, he put forward Israel's position on the war in Gaza while rejecting charges of genocide.
8: I'm not shying away from the human tragedy in Gaza. And you want to know something? We care. We care. It it is pain for us that our neighbors are suffering so much. But how else can we defend ourselves in an infrastructure of terror of unbelievable size? and I call upon the entire international community to stand with Israel and reject this claim.
17: Many countries around the world have expressed concerns about the disproportionality of Israel's war on Gaza and the human costs. There are legal proceedings on more than one front, yet it's not clear what effect this could have on Israel's actions and what consequences there could be, especially with allies like the United States publicly stating their unwavering support. Paul Ging, Al Jazeera, for Inside Story.
16: Let's bring in our guests in Paris, Lara El Bono, an international lawyer and human rights advocate, who co-hosts the weekly podcast, The Palestine Pod. In Toronto, William Schabertz, Professor of International Law at Middlesex University in the UK, he previously served as the chairperson of the Commission of Inquiry on the 2014 Gaza Conflict. And in Dublin, Jennifer Cassidy, lecturer in diplomacy and international law at the University of Oxford and a former UN and EU diplomat. A very warm welcome to each of you. Mr. Chavis, I'll start with you in Toronto and start with that criminal complaint against Israeli President Isaac Herzog in Switzerland. Now, in theory, I know that third countries don't have criminal jurisdiction over heads of state, government and the foreign ministers of any other countries. But can that immunity be lifted in certain circumstances, such as cases of alleged crimes against humanity?
13: Not as international law stands today. There's quite a, a, a clear judgment of the International Court of Justice uh, from about 20 years ago, that says that the, the national courts simply cannot exercise jurisdiction Uh, in criminal matters over a foreign head of state or foreign minister, So, I think it's pretty clear there and I think that's probably the the fatal uh, fact uh, of the complaint that was made against the President of Israel in Switzerland a few days ago.
16: Okay, Ms. Cassidy, there has been a lot of activity in Western countries recently using universal jurisdiction, targeting people in Sudan and Syria. Are these countries such as Germany, which found a Syrian colonel guilty of crimes against humanity in 2022, are they now under pressure to treat Israeli officials in the same way?
18: Certainly there is, as you rightly noted, a growing pressure um, in, quote-unquote, Western countries um, to... uh, to not only respect international law but to adhere to it and uphold it. And although it was rightly mentioned by the, by the previous panelists, this is quite difficult to do regarding the universal jurisdiction. Specifically in this case, we must note that this is a serving uh, head of state who has diplomatic immunity. It is not a post, um, you know, uh, retired head of state. It is a serving member state. So, it's an extremely difficult thing to uh, prosecute. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an extremely difficult thing to to file. However, as you rightly noted, pressure is being exerted, uh, not by governments and not by, uh, yes, by some extent governments, but the political um, power is not backing a lot of Western states. It's the people um, around the world who are really actually growing this movement and pressurizing their states and, and their legislators to do this.
16: Yeah, absolutely. From what we know about this criminal complaint against the Israeli president, it has been brought by a number of individuals. Uh, Ms. Elborno, do you think that we will see universal jurisdiction being used against Israeli officials who, let's say, unlike President Isaac Herzog, who don't have that immunity because they're a head of state or head of government or a foreign minister, could it make it difficult for them to move around? Is that something that you see happening?
19: Well, I absolutely agree that we're going to continue to see more legal action brought worldwide, whether it be in national courts or continued pressure on the international institutions like the ICC and the ICJ um, to uh, achieve some sort of accountability Um, and I just want to say that whether or not those cases are ultimately successful whether or not they're dismissed for jurisdictional or procedural reasons or whether they actually reach um, a ruling on the merits is almost not really the point. Every new case which is brought in an effort to hold Israel accountable um, for their genocidal onslaught in Gaza is going to add more pressure to changing the status quo. And this of course is not to be viewed in isolation from all the forms of resistance that we're seeing um, in this moment worldwide, including BDS, grassroots efforts like direct action, and other efforts to hold elected officials accountable um, amongst others. So really, I just wanna emphasize that the law is merely a tool, Um, it's not sufficient, but it's also not meaningless, as some might think, after decades of um, understandable frustration okay with it as a means for achieving justice and accountability yes
16: and we've certainly seen uh, protests around the world we have seen growing support for the boycott divestment and sanctions or bds movement um, if we can continue to talk about what's happening legally mr shabas mexico and chile have referred what's happening in Israel and Gaza to the International Criminal Court. And Mexico has said that the ICC is the proper forum to establish criminal potential criminal responsibility. Why do you think that these countries think that the ICC is a better court to investigate what's happening?
13: Well, the ICC is a, of course a criminal court and it's going to focus on individuals. We were talking about the, the situation of the president of Israel visiting Switzerland, um, according to the case law of the International Criminal Court, he has no immunity there. And so he could be prosecuted, and Switzerland would be under an obligation to to bring him to justice, to see that he would be transferred to The Hague, arrested, and so on. So there are some real advantages to the criminal law route. Uh, it's also something that can operate more speedily uh, than, for example, the International Court of Justice, which is mm-hmm. going to probably in the next few days, in the next week or two, deliver an order against Israel, but on the merits of the case, we're not going to have a ruling for probably three, four, five years. It's another way of putting pressure, and Uh it's very important what those states have done, because they are putting pressure uh, on the prosecutor of the court. Uh, The prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has been reluctant, I think, to proceed uh, with uh, Israel and Palestine, and this is going to, tighten the screws on him and, and, and hopefully compel more uh, action on his part.
16: Yeah, Ms. Cassidy, that's certainly been one accusation against the ICC prosecutor, Karim Khan, isn't it? Is that he favors Israeli charges over long-standing uh, Palestinian charges. Do you, how much pressure do you think um, Karim Khan is under as the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court?
18: a huge amount of pressure and rightly so and i think your observations regarding um the uh, well also the global observations that he's favoring the Israeli side over the Palestinian side, because we we need to bear in mind this is uh, these advisory motions also by the ICJ and other countries regarding the illegal annexation of territories, what's happening in the West Bank, the changing status of Jerusalem. All these charges have been brought well before, you know, October 7th, and this has never been looked into by the court. But he is and he should be experiencing a lot of pressure. And I think a key point to note that was noted again by by the previous panelists, which we must pick up on, is the speediness at which the ICC can act. Because with the ICJ, for example, we know that a genocidal ruling is going to take
1: years. I myself worked on the- Welcome back. And uh, that was a discussion uh, on the issuing of a complaint against the President of the State of Israel as he attended the World Economic Forum Summit in Davos, Switzerland. That's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal. Worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, Saturday, January the 20th, uh, 2024. We've been broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website uh, at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Uh, That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to um, read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of uh, some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go... Uh, to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And you've been listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, Saturday, uh, January 20th, uh, 2024. We'll close out uh, with the music of the legendary Miles Davis on the album entitled Live Evil. This is Abayome Azikwe starting off and have a beautiful week.
3: We'll <laughs>